Okay, gang, if you brought a Bible, I want you to open it to Matthew's biography, the 25th chapter. Okay? Go to Matthew's biography in the 25th chapter. Today, you may or may not know, is the fourth in a five, maybe six-part series entitled First Things First. We've been talking about priorities for the last few weeks, and priorities are more valuable, I think, than a lot of people realize. Priorities function as signposts in our lives to help us make decisions, and sometimes those decisions affect us in a very profound way. Uh, If you've ever watched someone kind of drift their way through life, just kind of bump into circumstance after circumstance, it's probably because that's an individual who's never determined what's the most important thing or things. Uh, During this series, we've been trying to convince you that there are commitments that are worth making if we're going to make it. Priorities establish the commitments we must make if we're going to make it. The very first time we got together a few weeks ago, week one, we talked about the inevitability of choice. You will be forced to choose. Everybody has to make a choice. And by choosing not to choose, well, you've chosen by default. You see, the American dream, I'm sorry to report this to you, hope this doesn't burst your bubble, is a lie. Because you cannot have it all. There's simply not enough hours in the day. There are not enough resources at your disposal. Not enough time, money, energy to achieve it all, to conquer it all, to possess it all, to do it all, to experience it all. You will be forced to choose. The first time we got together, I wanted to stress that to you, the inevitability of choice. You will be forced to choose. Those who drift through life, their lives are governed not by priorities, not by first things, not by the things that really matter most. Their lives are governed by two primary factors. Momentary desires, what I want now, how do I feel at the moment, and emergencies, what kinds of things demand our attention. The next time we got together in week two, we talked about the outcome or the byproduct of a life lacking priorities, which is worry. Jesus said in Matthew chapter six, he said, look, You don't have to worry. If you'll redirect your devotion, if you'll focus on, quote, his kingdom and his righteousness, then all these other little things that you tend to worry about, God will make sure to see to it that you have them as well. You see, we tend to worry about the things in this life that we're most devoted to, right? I don't worry about your stuff because I'm not devoted to your stuff. I worry about mine because I'm devoted to mine. Jesus said the reason we worry is misplaced devotion or mismanaged priority. Shift your priority, alter your devotion to his kingdom, his righteousness, and there's no need for worry. Now, last time we got together, we talked about a big word. The word is responsibility. Remember from Luke chapter 19? In Luke 19, Jesus told a parable about a mina, M-I-N-A. The mina parable teaches that we are all responsible to God for his latest revelation. You know, as we sit here today, there's not one of us that's never heard the name Jesus Christ, okay? We've all been exposed to God's greatest revelation, which was himself incarnate. We call that the incarnation 
of Jesus Christ. God became one of us, walked among us, lived among us, died for us, and rose again. The parable of the mina teaches that since you're exposed to that information, you are therefore responsible to God. It determines your afterlife. Today, we're going to examine another parable that Jesus told, and I hope to use it to reveal another meaningful priority to live by. Now, you know what parables were, right? We've talked about this. A parable was a very simple story that Jesus used to teach a a much bigger principle. And the parables, everybody could relate to the parables because he talked about things that people knew. He talked about family. He talked about children. He talked about farming. He talked about fishing. Uh, He talked about every kind of circumstance that those people saw themselves in. And then he took that story and he applied it to a much higher, even eternal principle, such as the case today with what I consider to be the most practical parable of them all. It's not the most famous. I think the most famous parable is the parable of the prodigal son. You familiar with that one? Most people are. The most famous parable, in my opinion, comes from Luke chapter 15. It's the parable of the prodigal son. The young man demands his share of the inheritance. He takes that money and he goes out and lives life on the edge. He goes after the brass ring and he winds up penniless. He is regretful and remorseful. He decides to return home. And when he returns home, hoping to at least be a servant to his father, his father is waiting with open arms. Now, everybody in the world can relate to a story like that. In fact, the parable of the prodigal son has been called the world's most perfect short story because everybody's had a family member that's made that kind of mistake. Everybody can recognize the universality of that application. But while it's the most famous, in my opinion, it's not the most practical. The most practical parable, hands down, in my opinion, is the one we will examine today. The parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. I mean, what story better applies more to how we live our lives today? The parable of the talents teaches how God acts and how God reacts to us, how we respond and are accountable to God. You probably know the story of the the talents as well. Remember, The, the master is about to go on a journey, so he calls in three of his servants. He gives one of them five talents, five bags of gold, 60 pounds each. He gives the other two talents, two 60 pound bags of gold, and a third one talent. When he goes on his journey and then returns, they must give account of the gifts he's given them. The first two have doubled the original investment, and they're rewarded handsomely. The third one, however, hid his talent, buried it in the backyard, and that servant is condemned. Now, remember, I told you this last time. Don't confuse a talent with an amount of money. A talent was a weight, a measurement of weight. A talent wasn't a coin. A talent could be gold. It could be silver. It was a 60-pound bag of either. So a 60-pound bag of gold. Can you imagine what you could do with a 60-pound bag of gold? How happy would that make William Devane on the news channel? Talks about gold in your safe. No, thanks, William. I've got five 60-pound bags of gold in my safe. I'd say you're set, right? Imagine what you could buy, an amazing amount of money, okay? 
A talent was a measurement of weight, 60 pounds. In fact, if I put it on the screen, last time we talked about a mina. The mina in Luke chapter 19 represented our exposure to the king. Remember, in that parable, there were 10 servants, and they all received the exact same amount, one mina, which was a small, less than one pound bag of silver. That was a mina. That represented exposure to the king. The revelation of God was the same to all 10 servants, and that's why that passage teaches our responsibility. But the talent, however, teaches something entirely different. Sometimes people blur the two. They think they're the same but different. No, they're incredibly different. The talent refers to our accountability to a returning king, that daily opportunity we have to honor the king. When you read the parable of the talents, as we will in a moment, I want you to recognize this is the meaning behind this story that Jesus tells. We're all accountable to God for the daily opportunity we have to honor the king. Here's the big idea of the message. I put it in the program. Please make sure you get this. We, you, me, young and old alike, we are alike or accountable to God for the gifts that he's given us. We're to serve him while he's away. And now read that again because that, that's pretty big. Maybe you expect to hear things like that at church. I don't know. But in my world, this hits me where I live. We, you and me, you don't have to have a degree for, from seminary for this to apply to you. You don't have to be a missionary for this to apply to you. You don't have to work in a church for this to apply to you. All of us, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, are accountable to God for the gifts that he's given us. We're to serve him while he's away. Now pause for a moment and let that sink in. That's a pretty big statement. What Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25 is that is more important than your business. That's what he says. I didn't say that. He said that. Jesus says in Matthew 25, that is more important than your education. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, that is more important than your house, your land, your empire, that. You see, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, I work hard to provide for my family, and rightly so, you should. But that's not eternal. That is. Man, if I can just complete my education, if I can just earn my degree and go out there and find my dream job and, and establish my place in the world. That's very important to me right now. I get that. It should be. But it's not as important as that. You say, man, I am trying to build my nest egg because I'm just a few years from retiring. I mean, I am focused on, on managing my wealth so that I can live comfortably for the rest of my life. That's important. I get it. But it's not as important as that. Jesus says in Matthew 25, this is what we are about. Let's read it together. Look at verse 14, Matthew 25. Again, Jesus said, it will be like a man going on a journey. It will be like, what will be like? Jesus is actually still answering a question the disciples asked him one chapter earlier in chapter 24 and verse 3. When they said, Jesus, tell me, when you come again the second time, What's that going to be like? And he starts to answer. When you return again for a second time, tell us, what will that be like? Again, verse 14. It will be like a man who's going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold. Now here, 
the NIV translation goes ahead and renders the Greek language to bag of gold, not talent. Your translation may still read talent, but that's exactly what it was. A bag of gold weighed 60 pounds or so. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag. Note the next phrase, each according to his ability. Now, this is difficult for some of you, because in your mind that doesn't sound fair. One gets five, one gets two, and one gets one. There is an entire arm of one of our political parties that would read something like that and say, that's just not right. Because in their minds, equality means sameness. Somehow it is unfair for you to have more than me. Somehow it is unfair that you have less than someone else. Notice, it's more fair than it could ever be because the master knows his servants. The master knows that one servant is capable of five talents. The other servant is capable of two. And one is capable of one. Doesn't make them any less equal. Doesn't make them any less loved by the master. It's according to each ability. You see? Imagine if we turn the tables. The way for the master to truly be unfair would be to give the five-talent man with the potential of managing five only one. Well, that's not fair. Imagine the other way around. To give the one-talent man who can barely manage one talent to give him five and overwhelm him. No, this is fair. This is life. I don't lose much sleep that I don't see myself as a five-talent individual and neither should you. There are others that are more gifted. There are others that are just in better situations. There are others that are smarter, more intellectual, more talented than I'll ever be. The fact is God gave me what I'm capable of managing and he's given you what you're capable of managing as well, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Verse 16, the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. Verse 17, so also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, you know how the story continues to unfold. When the journey is complete, the master returns, and the servants must give account. The two servants who doubled the investment, who took the gift given by the master and put it to work, leveraged it, were rewarded greatly. In fact, they were given great reward. But what about the one who buried his one and only talent? Read with me beginning in verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. This is often the perspective of an individual who does not want to be judged by God. A skeptic. Someone who, because I don't want to be accountable to God, I try it myself and turn the tables and call God a hard God. Reveals that this master or this servant didn't know this master. More on that in just a minute. I heard you're a hard man. I knew that you're investing where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. 
So I was afraid, and I went out, and I hid your gold in the ground. I buried it. Interesting. We do the same thing when we refuse to use God's gift for us. You know what I'd love to have happen one day? I'd love for somebody to use a communication card and check the I want to get involved, I want to serve box. Or somebody to catch me after the service, say, Pastor Mike, I want to get involved. And me have to say, I am sorry. We have so many people trying to volunteer. We have no room for any more helpers. In 25 years as a church, that's never happened. I'm still waiting, right? You see, we do the same thing as this servant when we take whatever gift God has given us and keep it to ourselves. And those of us who refuse to see ourselves as accountable to God, we try to turn the tables and point back to God, well, you're a hard God. It's unfair that you should hold me by your standard. I prefer to judge me by my own. You realize this, again, one of the multiple distinguishing factors of Christianity that separates Christianity from every other world religion, whether it's Judaism or Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism, as long as you can look at the person next to you and feel superior, you're on the right track, but not Christianity. Christianity says we will all be held accountable for the gifts God has given. Keep reading. Verse 25, so I was afraid I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. Man, that's pretty harsh when you think about it. But in reality, that's where a lot of people are headed. One day when the books are open, and one day when God holds you to account, please hear me, church. The response for you may be the same, but it need not be. Now, when you read through a story like that, it's pretty easy to connect the dots, right? The master, of course, that's God or Jesus, right? He was here for a time and now he's gone away, but he's coming again. And if we're his servants, we're going to be held accountable. The servants, well, that's the followers of Christ, right? We've been entrusted something to strengthen and build his kingdom while he's away. And one day we will give account. And isn't that just the way God works? Think about this. You know, the master didn't force the servants to do anything. He didn't force the servants to invest. He didn't stand there and look over their shoulder while they worked or leveraged their opportunities and gifts. No, he gave them the opportunity. He gave them the gift and then he left and they were on their own, but they were still accountable to him. It seems to me from reading the parable of the talents that the goal for any Christ follower is this, to leverage today's gift for tomorrow's reward. On some level, that is a huge motivation in our faith walk to take what God's given me today and not build my kingdom with it, build his kingdom with it because the reward is coming Tomorrow, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are responsible, accountable for the gifts that he's given you. Now, question. Why do you suppose the one man, the one talent man did what he did? Why do you suppose the one talent man did what he did? I mean, why didn't he look at the five talent man, see what he was doing and say, hey, I could do that. Or the two talent man learn from that experience and say, hey, I could do that, it would seem to be a very relevant question to me. 
Because I think the reason he responded the way he responded is the same reason we respond today the way we respond. A couple of quick things. Number one, the one talent man did what he did because, number one, he wasn't a true servant. He wasn't a true follower of Christ. We didn't read this, but later on in the story in verse 30, after he judges this wicked and lazy servant, he says, cast him out into the, quote, darkness, a place of, quote, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does that terminology sound familiar? In another part of the Bible, those are the exact words that Jesus used to describe what we call hell. Eternal separation from God. The reason that one talent servant did what he did was because he wasn't a true servant. Do you realize that the Bible teaches that every follower of Jesus Christ will bear fruit on some level? If your faith in Jesus Christ is authentic, you will bear fruit. That's all about John 15. That's all about Galatians chapter 5 and Romans chapter 12. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will bear fruit on some level. This servant bore none. I don't think he was a true servant. I don't think he was a true follower of Jesus Christ. But now, a couple other reasons. Why did the one talent man do what he did? Number two, maybe he felt inferior. I mean, when you're rubbing shoulders all day with five talent people and two talent people, it's easy to feel inferior. Imagine standing there, you're one of three, chosen from dozens, perhaps. This guy gets five, this guy gets two, and you get one. Right away, I feel inferior. How come I only got one? You don't think very highly of me, I suppose. Maybe that's the way this guy felt. When you watch other people just kind of float through life with grace and ease, and you struggle every day of your life, it seems, just to get by, It's easy to feel overwhelmed. It's easy to feel inferior. I don't know if it's this way in other cultures around the world, but in my opinion, it's certainly this way in America. Who do we most applaud in America? Who gets the brightest spotlight in media? It's the best and brightest among us, right? We go to great lengths in the United States of America to say, look at that cat. Man, she's something. Can you believe that guy? And there we sit. Kind of Joe Average. I'll never write a book. I'll never pastor a church in the thousands. I'll never be a Fortune 500 business owner. I'll never make a million dollars in the stock market. We, We play these games with ourselves, don't we? Maybe that's why that guy did what he did. He felt inferior Here's one last possibility. Maybe the one talent man did what he did because he was afraid. He said he was afraid in verse 25. You're a hard man. I was afraid of you. Maybe he was afraid because he thought the master is too hard. What if I fail? Maybe maybe he was afraid because He had analyzed his master incorrectly. What if he didn't really know the master? You realize that in the story, if the master is Jesus, Jesus is not a hard man. The Bible uses words like merciful to describe Jesus, gracious, loving, kind, forgiving. Ours is not a hard master, and neither was his. Again, a lot of people don't want to make themselves accountable, so they attempt to turn the tables They want to change the conversation away from I'm accountable to you to this is what I don't understand about you. 
Or this is what seems unfair to me about you. A lot of people who don't come to church, they don't come to church because they don't see themselves as accountable. They don't want to see themselves as accountable. But the fact is they get hung up on what they don't understand about their God. They're trying to turn the tables. Maybe that's what this guy was trying to do. Now, here's a big question to me that matters. What would have happened if the one talent man had gone ahead and invested his talent, but then lost it? How do you suppose that would have went? How do you suppose that would have gone? What if the one talent man invested his talent, but he lost it? Again, maybe that's why he was afraid. You think, well, that's what he was afraid of. He was afraid that if he put himself out there and he lost the master's money, then he'd be in big trouble. So at least he saved it. At least he held on to it. But you realize the text in no way or shape or form demonstrates that idea. Why? Because God's word never commands you to be successful. Did you know that? Do you know that nowhere in this book does it say try and fail and God's going to condemn you? Nowhere. God doesn't call me to be successful. He doesn't call you to be successful. He calls us to be faithful. You see, whether you've been given five or one, accountability means not successful, faithful. What we're talking about here is a systematic, intentional movement on your part to serve God's purposes in his kingdom. Look, many of you have been around since the very beginning days of this church. Let me take you back for a minute. We were very, very small, meeting in a skating rink. There were few people there on Sundays, and our offerings were tiny. At that time, we were a one-talent church. But we invested all of the extra we had, and before long, we began to grow. And our one-talent church became a two-talent church. Now, we could have taken those two talents and buried them in the backyard, but instead, we invested We gave, we sacrificed, we served, we came together. And God made our two-talent church a four-talent church. So much so that 100 people 25 years ago gave $400,000 in offering. We borrowed an equal amount. And with $800,000, we purchased this property and built this facility. Now, now we were a four-talent church maybe a six-talent church. One staff member became two staff members. And two staff members became four staff members. And 25 kids at summer camp became 100 kids at summer camp and 200 kids at summer camp and so on. $3,000 annually to missions around the world became last year over $50,000 annually to missions around the world. And at that moment, I can promise you, it was very tempting to bury those talents in the backyard because when this church was only 200, 250 strong, this facility was very comfortable. We had room for everything. We could do anything we wanted. We could have multiple groups meeting at the church whenever they wanted because we had room and space and flexibility, something that today we don't have. Now, what do we do today that ours is an eight-talent church? Well, I can tell you what we don't do. We don't bury it in the backyard. We don't get comfortable. We don't settle in. We leverage God's gift for the reward tomorrow. Let me quit with three quick statements. A misconception, an idea, and a takeaway. First, the idea. Here's the big idea. When we focus on our weaknesses instead of our strengths, we misuse the gifts God has given us. 
When we focus on our weaknesses, I've only got one talent. I've not been given five. He's got five. He's got two. I've only got one. When we focus on our weaknesses instead of our strengths, we misuse the gifts God has given us. Uh, It's called the Pareto Principle. It's the 80-20 rule. Do you realize that 20% of your efforts employing or exercising your strengths will yield 80% of your results and reward? And 80% of your time spent developing your weaknesses, focused on your weaknesses, trying to improve your weaknesses will only yield 20% of your results. The big idea is that when we focus on the weakness instead of the strength, we misuse the gifts that God has given us. Here's the big misconception. If you don't get rid of your weaknesses, you can't be fulfilled. Here it is. Big misconception. Personal weakness disqualifies me from ultimate fulfillment. Man, if that's not a culturally relevant message, I don't know what is. You know why you're unhappy? You know why you're not fulfilled? Well, you're weak in this area. You're weak in that area. You're weak in the other area. I see it all the time. I see men who aren't any good with money and math and numbers trying to balance the family checkbook because, you know, I'm the head of the house. I've got to take care of the family budget. Women who can't cook like their mama spending hours in the kitchen trying to prove something. See? You don't have to solve all your problems. You don't have to correct all your weaknesses. You don't even have to hide or camouflage them in order to be fulfilled. And number three, the big takeaway. You don't lose your talent by investing it. You lose it by burying it. I was shocked to do some research this past week. Do you realize that there are thousands of churches in the United States that are closing their doors every year? Thousands. Thousands of churches that at one time were eight talent churches, but they got complacent. They settled into the groove. Nobody wanted to make any waves. Nobody wanted to sacrifice. Everybody was waiting for somebody else to step up until now the building is an empty shell of what used to be or what might have been. Empty followers of Christ, far too many followers of Christ who reached some level of maturity. They got comfortable. I don't need to pray much anymore, don't need to give much anymore, don't need to serve much anymore, don't mean to volunteer much anymore. And they started dying spiritually because they buried their talent. Look, the message of Matthew 25 has not changed, church. I'm so proud of you for the business you're building, and I'm so proud of you for the family you're providing for, and I am so proud of you for that education that you've acquired, those achievements, that success, but those things aren't eternal. The things we're talking about today are. Let me ask you a simple question. What's stopping so many of you from lifting your hand and saying, hey, sign me up. I can help. I can do something around here. Sign me up. Every eight weeks, I can go sit back there and play with kids in the nursery. I can travel with Tyler to Tennessee for three days and look after a bunch of seventh graders or 10th graders. What's keeping you? Well, I know what's keeping you from doing that. (laughs) I tell him every year when he's, does these camps back to back say, brother, Godspeed, man. I did my time. (laughs) Let me ask you, what's keeping you from investing what God has given you? Because the reward is coming. And maybe even more importantly, you're accountable. So am I. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a clear, simple story that reminds us that there are things in this life we'll do that will be wonderful for years, maybe even decades, but There are other things we can do in this life that are eternal, and the rewards will last as such. Open our eyes to this bigger picture, I pray. 
Dismiss us now, Lord, with your blessing upon us. Watch over us. Bless these homes, these families. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. I hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time. Membership class begins in five minutes. In the community room.